This is Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Michael Schwartz has been in South Florida long enough to see our appetites change. He opened what you might call Miami's original gastropub more than 15 years ago. His restaurant, Michael's Genuine Food and Drink, earned him one of the highest honors for a chef, a James Beard Award for the best chef in the South. Then the neighborhood changed. The design district became Rodeo Drive. A gastropub knockoff opened in every neighborhood. Michael evolved with it. He did that by staying true to what made him different. He worked with local farmers to grow the food he wanted. Florida fishermen brought him catches right off the boat. Others noticed. Young chefs wanted to work with him. Then they spun off their own restaurants. 25 years after he left Philadelphia, Michael influenced the future of Miami's local restaurants. That's one reason he's been nominated for another James Beard Award. The Outstanding Chef Award that Michael's up for goes to one of only 20 chefs in the country. It honors those who have mentored the next generation. Someone who hasn't just spent his life in the kitchen, but changed the appetite outside of it. Here to talk to us about it, and probably make us hungry, is Michael Schwartz. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. So, I mean, I think like the most pressing question, which we, you, we were just chatting about before, is, you know, you're from Philly. You've been a business owner and a local for 25 years. So I think the most important question asked is, will you be cheering for the Eagles on Sunday? Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, I'll be cheering for the Eagles at the stadium. What? Get out yeah, of here. So I'm a, you know, yeah, I've been in Miami now almost 30 years, actually. Okay. But And I have since then adopted the Miami Heat as my official basketball team. But okay. I'm an Eagle fan, always have been. And uh, so, yeah, I'm excited for the big game. Well, the Dolphins haven't done a lot to, uh, to sway your, your this loyalties. This is true. This is true. Maybe yeah. the Heat caught my attention because they were good, even dating back 20 years ago. But, yeah, so, yeah, very excited for this weekend. Yeah, the, the, they've, they've eaten, the Heat have eaten the Dolphins' lunch. The, it, it, for sure, uh, for sure. So, so tell me about, you know, you're a Philly guy and you've really, you've made your home here, but I'm curious to take us back a little bit. What brought you from Philly to Miami of all places in the world? Well, that's a good question because really from Philly, I moved here from New York. Okay. Actually about, it's coming up on 30 years ago. We won't hold that against you. That's okay. Uh, So, so, so the, the path was Philly where I started my culinary career, and I worked for about five years for a pretty swanky northern Italian restaurant uh, that had an offshoot that I went to go work for. But from Philly, I moved to California. Okay. And then I worked for Wolfgang Puck. Lived in California for one year and worked for him at Chinois on Main in the 80s. Okay, so Wolfgang Puck in the 80s, he he kind of changed the game. What did you learn from working with a guy like that? I mean, we could spend an hour on that. Okay, well, let's, you know, because, let's start with the next couple minutes. Well, I'll tell you. So it was a huge eye-opener for me because I had been, I was still, I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So I think I was about 21 when I packed up and, and got in uh, my Jeep. 85 CJ7, which I still own, by the way. Come on. It's been restored twice. Oh, this is a man who appreciates car. Yeah, I got to see it. So drove across country with no plan, except that I wanted to broaden my horizons. And man, did I ever. Uh, I got, you know, I landed in LA. I had a friend and I stayed with her for a minute. And then I went and knocked on doors to get a job. And I went to Chinois on Main, which was Wolf's. I think at that time he had three restaurants. It's Spago and Granita, maybe. And and Chinois and Maine. And so he was there 
you know, working pretty he was often. there behind the kitchen uh, cooking. But he is the best. And so if you could imagine that I grew up in, you know, in the suburbs of Philly. I was lucky enough to work for a great, very progressive northern Italian restaurant at the time. But that's all I knew was this northern Italian cuisine. And so I moved out to California and went to work at, at Chinois, which you may or may not know. You know, but a lot of the listeners might not know that he and that restaurant really started this Asian fusion, this idea of fusing cultures together in a cuisine. And he did it. And Chinois was the template for what became very commonplace now for us to go and eat at a place like P.F. Chang's, for instance, which, you know, really spawned from this idea. And Chinois was a small restaurant. I got a job and uh, and it was super intimidating for me. In so, way? well, it was all the whole kitchen was was Chinese and Japanese chefs. Hmm. And they're very stoic, and they they'll play with you. And you know, I was a kid. And here you're this uh, curly haired guy from the East Coast. So it was me and this other guy that I met. His name was Tony Pels, who since passed away, and I think about him all the time. But he also had a red Jeep, and we worked daytime together. And we were the only uh, gaijin. We were the only gringos in that kitchen. Right. Everybody was um, was Japanese or Chinese. Mm-hmm. And it was super intimidating. And so, but it was hugely eye-opening for me. It was the, it was the connection to product. Obviously, being in California, the produce and the, just the product to work with was vibrant and different. Um, and then... It's this, like the place where Chez Panisse was open. Which Chez Panisse in, in Oakland, right. Northern California. But for me, anywhere in California, just... It's a whole different level of, of product in general. And then the approach. It was really an eye-opening experience for me to see them play with temperatures and textures and colors and the contrast. And that stuck with me. And that is now uh, does define how I cook and how I like to eat. I, I, I'm curious because the, the restaurants here, what, you eventually come down here and you open, like we're talking the 90s. If folks know Big Pink, mm-hmm. that was a restaurant that you helped cr- yeah. cr- create yeah. the concept could, around. I'll talk to you about that. Let me you let me like go some? for so yeah. because Big Pink was like the bane of my existence, <laughs> and I'll tell you about it. But, well, it doesn't feel like a Michael Schwartz restaurant. Well, it's there's just a lot of lot of backstory behind okay. that. But but from California, I got the opportunity to do a consulting gig in Japan. So oh. one of the cooks I befriended. And he had some friends that were looking for an American chef to go consult in their new California-style restaurant outside of Tokyo in Kawasaki. And I got the job. And I didn't know anything, but I got the job. And they flew me out there. They gave me an interpreter. And I, I often tell this story because, you know, I, I have two cookbooks. One of them's a pizza book. And we have a couple pizza places. And pizza's a, a passion of mine. But, I own that book. But I went to Japan, and they wanted to know how to make pizza. And I had never made pizza. But there was a Spago in Tokyo. And I knew the chef. And I took a, he, he said, come over and I'll show you how to make the dough and we'll talk and you, you'll get a crash course on pizza. I went there that day. I went back to the restaurant that evening and taught the, the team there how to make pizza. So that was like, so. <laughs> Today I'm an expert in exactly. pizza making. So one, one year in, in California for Wolf really sort of tr- changed my life. And we should say Wolfgang Puck, I mean, like, he was one of the first to really put non-traditional ingredients on pizza and make it popularized. Smoked salmon. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, uh, so from there, I moved to New York, and I took my first sous chef job. Uh, and, and I worked for a guy named Frank Crispo. And no one knows who Frank is, but anytime I'm in an interview or accepting a speech or, or giving gratitude for what I know, I always have to mention him, A, because he had a profound impact on me, and B, whenever I don't, he finds out and calls me out about it. <laughs> so love you, Frank. Uh, and, and then... And then and what, so, wait, what, 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 what kind of profound impact did he have? What, oh, well, he, he taught me a lot about sort of a lot of things. So he... he, he what can you talk about on the radio? Well, I could, <laughs> I, I'll tell you, really work ethic, oh, okay. uh, I, I think, and, and technique and just this endless pursuit of perfection. And, you know, he, so back then we used to work a lot, you know. You don't say. Well, not like today. You know, if, 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 a, if a management position culinary, uh, you know, manager was working 50 or 55 hours, they'd be like, oh, I got this work-life balance thing is not working for me. But we used to work 80, you know, but if I worked 80, Frank would work 90. Could ne- if I got in the kitchen early, he'd already be there. Wow. If I tried to wait him out to leave, he'd still be there. <laughs> so he taught me a lot about a lot of things. But, uh, and so, so then from New York, I moved to Colorado. And uh, the owner of the restaurant in New York bought a small inn in Vail. And I moved out to Vail to be the chef. So it was my first chef job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a small 60-room luxury inn. It had a restaurant, three-meal period and it was great and i and i got that my first wonderful yeah got I'd my first amazing yeah i stayed for about <laughs> three years i wasn't a skier but i became a skier and sure. love colorado from there i moved back to new york and then i moved to to miami in uh 1994 and you arrived at an interesting time because like norman van aiken and those like what they call the original mango, mango gang, gang like the original guys that started to put miami cuisine on a map on a little bit of a larger scale. That's right. It was Mark Militello. It was Norman Van Aken. It was Alan Susser. And I would say it was Robin Haas. Right. Those guys were pretty prevalent at that time. And I moved here and in 1995 opened Nemo. And your your partner at the time, the money guy was... Miles. Miles Chaffetz. And he still owns... Uh, so, so we opened Nemo together right. in 95. And that was a real, for me, an expression of all the things that I learned from Wolfgang and Northern Italian and put this mishmash of things together. That it was like, there was sushi on the menu maybe? There was never sushi nope. until maybe after I left. Oh. But we then opened Big Pink, another Big Pink in Fort Lauderdale, which was a failure. We opened a sushi bar together. We opened a bunch of restaurants together and then sort of had a split up. Yeah. And when you've, we... You've talked about that, that it was like... Yeah. Like you, you start to grow, and you're like, oh, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, like there we was were a, growing in the, in, the in, in opposite directions. Yeah. And uh, but for him, when I, when we split, he went then went on to open Prime One Twelve and has had amazing success. We had a falling out, but we are now uh, good friends again, and we compare notes a lot and talk on the phone and have a good time together. But I remember you told me how you guys reconnected because yeah. the, you guys had a falling out, and didn't talk for like ten years. Yeah, a long time. But then there was like some family things that kind of brought you back. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, death death will bring everyone together, hey, unless you're the one that dies. Yeah, the, yeah they're there without you. Yeah. But who was it? Was it someone that had passed in his family or something you called him? My or? father and his mother both oh. passed at a very, uh, very close in, in time to each other. Yeah. And we found out, and then we just started to have more of a dialogue. And then through COVID, I, I would say we talked a lot, you know, just sort of how we're dealing with things and comparing notes. And Great business guy. 
Yeah, 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 he's an interesting guy. You know, he's yeah. the best man at my wedding. Oh. So, you know, we have a, a rich history, uh, and he's a funny guy, you know. And so, but he went on to have great success with the Prime thing, and now Nemo is now Prime Fish, and right. and anyway, and then... And then, so you, so you guys have this split, and you're like, I'm going to do my own thing, and then you're like, oh, no. What Did we do, talk about this What before? do I do? I No, I, I just, I know that... Like, I think anecdotally, you and I have talked about that then there was kind of like a big moment. Like, what am I going to do now? Well, I was probably pretty cocky, and I was not happy with sort of our relationship and the direction that we each wanted to go. We're not aligned. And I was just like, you know, I'm out. You know, and we negotiated some stupid settlement, which, you know, was obviously to his favor because I was a creative and I was... I would say I'm much more of a businessman now than I was then, and I wouldn't consider myself a great businessman now. So <laughs> you could imagine. So, but I was like fed up, and I just wanted out, and we settled. Uh, and then I was like, "Uh oh, I don't have a plan," you know. And I, don't I had have a, fa- a plan. I don't have a restaurant. I don't have a job. I did have a family. Yeah. Oh. And uh, so we had two kids at that point. We sold our house, downsized. While I was figuring out, you know, what I was going to do, and I took some really bad, odd jobs that I'd rather not talk about. But then, my wife got pregnant again with our third kid, my son, and then so 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 we had just downsized. She got pregnant. I'm floundering around looking for a job, and uh, so anyway, fast forward a couple years. And I opened Michael's Genuine in 2007. And that, and that kind of put us in the place. So you opened Michael's Genuine in 2007 in the design district. Yeah. What was Miami's food scene like? <laughs> and what was the, the design district like then? Yeah, I think the food scene was sort of like it is now. The, you know, a lot of flash. But still, I think there was a good amount of young talent chefs that were trying to do some pretty cool things on a different scale. I think... I would say it's the same as it is now, but just on a on a smaller scale than as it is now. And what did you try to do at that restaurant differently? The thing that really ended up catching everybody's attention. Yeah. What was your ethos for it? Forget yeah. what how people responded, but how did you go into it? You know, fresh, simple, pure is the is the sort of the, the motto and the tagline and the, really the mission statement. And it was really that uh, leveraging great product, not screwing it up. Uh, and not being pretentious. And it's part of, you know, the, the word genuine is, uh, you know, free of pretension and, and, uh, and hypocrisy. And so that's what we wanted to be. We wanted to be a place where you could feel comfortable in the design district, which was not what it is now, but it was a few square blocks of streets that were, that I think were cleaned up with some interesting, you know, tenancy. Uh, there was still some design showroom stuff. There was some art galleries. It was before Wynwood, right. And I felt like it was accessible. So I thought it was accessible from the beach, from north and south, that people could come. And there was no Prada, no Gucci, no any of those big... No, none uh, of that. Yeah, it was, it was just like a very quiet... Well, uh, I remember, you know, my now business partner, Sunil, uh, I was very excited because we got our sign, you know, and the <laughs> sign got put up and it was before we opened. And I'm like, come on, I want to, we'll drive over to see the sign. And I remember him taking him there and he's like, okay, I'm not getting out of the car. Like, <laughs> oh I, man. Okay. Neighborhood was like that. <laughs> Great. Right? Yeah. I mean, you could shoot a cannon down the street and not, it was, it was pretty quiet. Not hit anything. But you know, during the day it was bustling. There was activity. 
Uh, and we were a destination. And like I said, it was easy enough to get to, so the people came once they discovered it. Can you talk about how it was received? Like, what did that restaurant do? Like, how did you how did you see people respond to what you were doing? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, it was great. Um, you know, look, I, I would say that I've been pretty fortunate in my career to decide to do something and people receive it well, right? And, um, and that was that. It was, it was a place that was, like I said, free of pretense. It was comfortable. The food was honest. Uh, it was fresh. And it told a story. And, um, and it was great, you know, to the point where, and it was affordable, right? Uh, because leading up, right after opening, I would say, if you remember, like 2008, 2009 was the recession. And we did very well through the recession because it was comforting. Uh, it wasn't prohibitively expensive. And the, those things that I just felt were important to me uh, paid off. And while you were there two years later in 2010, you win a James Beard Award How about for that? the best chef in the South. Yeah. And kind of put that into context what that <laughs> meant for like the people around you and everything else. Well, I'll put it in the context for what it meant to me. Yeah. Because, I, you know, I felt really good about what I was doing. I was working my ass off, uh, you know, with my head in a wood oven, you know, literally for 12 hours a day. But I was happy and I felt good about it. I was happy with the food and the place and it was well received and people enjoyed it. But I remember, you know, and I didn't open the restaurant to win a beard award, right? I opened the restaurant to express myself and what I, a place that I felt was important for the community or the neighborhood. But I remember um, getting nominated, uh, and I won't name names, but somebody said, well, you're not going to win because it's just not that kind of, you're not that kind of chef. It's not that kind of place. And I don't know that they were entirely uh, off track. It's not what I was going for. Similar to like the Michelin thing we could talk about. Because I never envisioned, I never paid attention to Michelin because it was never in, in Florida and I've been here so long, but we weren't playing to that. We were just doing our thing and it was, it was really gratifying to be recognized with a nomination, let alone a win, uh, in a restaurant that, that wasn't fine dining. And you know, back then, so 2010, 13 years ago, you know, I think it was right when fine dining was starting to change. Uh, and how do we define fine dining? And then we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back to that question on how we define it. Uh, we're talking to Michael Schwartz, a pioneering Miami chef who's nominated for a James Beard Award. Uh, be back in a minute on Sundial. We're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias, and our guest today is Michael Schwartz, hey. one of the pioneering Miami chefs nominated for a James Beard Award. Uh, it would be his second. You know, we were talking about the evolution of fine dining, yeah. and I thought what your restaurant did was interesting because it stripped away the white tablecloths and the the uh, coordinated presentations. Right. It was like, if you, the, and I mean this in the best possible way, it was like, the best kind of bar food you could ever have. That's right. Like it was elevated. Well, that was important. It's funny because strip away the white tablecloths. I, I don't know if you remember this or even know this, but when we opened Michael's Genuine, 
we had white tablecloths with butcher paper on it. Mm. And it was because I couldn't afford nice enough tables not to cover <laughs> with something. So I was like, all right, well, we got these crappy tables. Let's put a tablecloth over it, but we'll put white butcher paper over it so it'll be sort of more casual. Right. Uh, and then as the success started to kick in, then I was able to afford wooden tables. But but it was it was a time when you know, defining what a white tablecloth or what a fine dining restaurant was. And it was less of white tablecloth, of hush, of uh, and more of personalized service that's a little bit more casual. And uh, you had your own playlist, I remember. Still do. You still do. Yeah, yeah. and and that's important to me. What so, kind of music? What kind of music is in that playlist nowadays? Oh, it's jazz. Okay, it's jazz of a pretty oh, Michael Stock, our, specific, our jazz guy. We'll uh, that. specific genre, sort of '60s groovy, Grant Green, Lou Donaldson kind of vibe. Okay, uh, you know, so it's not like sleepy jazz, but because jazz is so broad, of right? Course. You say jazz, it could be, you know. Kenny G, no disrespect. Well, to Miles Davis on the other side, exactly. Yeah. Or the, when Miles Davis sounded like Kenny G. Right. No, I'm just <laughs> I love Miles Davis, but but so yeah. So I you mean, create this atmosphere that's that's laid back, that's laid back, but the food is not laid back, and yeah. and that and that bled over into other restaurants that we see now is people feeling the freedom to to create really good food without having all the other accoutrements around yeah i i think that i was riding the wave of the farm to table movement nationally that seems seemed at that point not to have taken hold in miami mm -hmm. you know but I, I think for me it was a common sense approach to cooking like connect with the people that are growing your food be closer to it it's fresher uh, be in tune with what they're growing it's more abundant you could leverage pricing when there's bumper crops stuff like that but but the relationship between you know a chef and a supplier, whether they grow it or curate it or fish it or harvest it or whatever you want to call it, those relationships I think are hugely important. And I don't know if they're as, as important to young chefs now as they realize, or certainly as they used to be, because uh, you know you're relying on. I, I mean I always say the secret to good food is good food. Right, right. If you buy good food, good in, time go, good out. Right. Sourcing it, you know where it comes from. You treat it right. You can't go wrong. You mentioned young chefs, so the award that you're up for now, which it's outstanding chef. Which mm -hmm. uh, it's like, what does that mean? Well, they only name that category. There are only 20 people named in the whole country. And one of the thing is the kind of influence that you've had, and you have all these young chefs that have come up. And I want to say that there are three or four that are nominated in their own right yeah. who worked with you. Uh, Michael Beltran for Outstanding Restaurant. Mm -hmm. Again, one of those national categories. Yep. Um, Neven Patel, yep. uh, Outstanding Restaurateur. And Aquino West as Emerging Chef. And, love and, it. and we're going to have Aquino on in a couple weeks. Love it. Uh, I love him and root for him. And, you know, that, thank you, Carlos, that makes me feel old. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but we should say, like, Aquino West... You paid for him. You guys rounded up funds for him to go to Noma yeah. and study. At, it was one of the great restaurants in the world. Yeah, so we had a program back then. It was like, uh, what the hell was it called? We did, a, we did a, you know, dinners in someone's backyard. I think Brad, who's my culinary director, Brad Heron, uh, he's like, uh, I forget what it was called. Anyway, we ra we picked people and raised money by throwing a dinner in his backyard 
uh, with the the chef that we wanted to support on a scholarship or to give money to go on a stage somewhere. Right, stage like an internship. And it was a and it was a great it was great fun thing that he did. I didn't do it. Brad did it. Uh, uh, and and uh, yeah, I remember that for Aquino. But you know that gives me great gratitude to, to see these people, um, you know, prosper and and achieve great things. Not that you know I was directly uh, responsible for their success, but I like to think that they learned something. They might have learned something that helped them along the way for sure. Right, and and that must be, you know, I, I, I'm curious that that idea of. Farm to table. That's something that they learned, and you see that a lot. Like Neven Patel has like a farm, and he's he's going to be on the show this week. Um, yeah. Well, Neven at, Neven took it to another level. Like he just started growing his own things. I mean, it was amazing, and I remember when he did it, and I was like, wow. I mean, he has the property, and he had the, and, and I don't know how he did it because he worked a lot at the restaurant. Right. He was the chef de cuisine at Michael's Genuine, and that was a busy restaurant. He was there all the time. And then he had a farm in the front of his house. And I'm like, how do you do both? Like two of the hardest jobs, maybe farming. And then I think he started a family. Right. Yeah. Now he's got twin kids. Amazing. Um, And it must be interesting to you to see how that landscape has changed. Right. So how would you describe the the Miami dining scene now? Like, how would you describe the kind of food and where it stacks up, you know, with other parts of the country? Yeah. You know, that's a great question. I'd like to hear your take on it, but I'll tell you my take. That's is why that, you're here today. Well, I said me. I said in the beginning of the show that it's not dissimilar to how it used to be, but it's on a larger scale, mm-hmm. right? And I think that with the influx of out-of-town operators that came through COVID, the whole world moved here, and everyone opened a restaurant, uh, you know, there's saturation of out-of-town operators, which uh, to me has always happened through the years that I've been here in Miami and different different degrees of uh, intensity, this yeah. being the most intense, right? Right. But I would say there's a great mix between, you know, the out-of-town, flashy, and or hotel restaurants that are exciting, some, uh, that, that capture national, if not international, attention. Then there's the homegrown sort of flashy, trendy clubstrants, we call them. Yep. Uh, which I think are also important in the landscape and the fabric that makes Miami what it is. I did not expect you to hear you say that. Well, I think I, okay. you know, I don't want to go to them. <laughs> but you know, you're glad they exist. And and some of them, you know, operate very intelligently and know what they're doing and work the margins and uh, you know reach out for references when when they hire people. Uh, not often, but some do. Uh, and then there's the you know the up and coming young chef driven creative and there seems to be a lot of that right now which is exciting let me ask you this uh and i'm gonna guess at the answer later but where do you dine out whenever you have to dine out or do you have like i'm guaranteed i'm guessing there are five go-to places that you have Hmm. that you regularly go to that's my guess if you're not cooking at home Something yeah. quick. You have some go-to places. Yeah, Michael's genuine. <laughs> this guy. You just we just walk in and just like cook me something. Make you me know something. through the rest of this conversation, I'll give you one every couple minutes. I know that you're a big sushi guy and you're a huge sushi snob. Yeah. Is there any so, place that you're still going? So I, I I'm a little disheartened by the. The, the sushi the local sushi scene. Oh, okay, you got you got spoiled from your time well, in California. Well, I, I just think it's gotten better, you know. But but if you look at the 
the cities with the best sushi. What do they all have in common? Uh, they're all close to Japan, is my guess. Well, they know. have a. They all have a big Japanese population. Okay. And we don't. Yeah. No, we don't. Definitely. And so, for that reason, I think that it's been behind the curve, and it's gotten better. But there is this, this, this sort of um, surge of omakase, ridiculously priced. Yeah. Uh, experiences that I'm not a huge fan of. Right, like $350 a person. Well, 350 is like a bargain now. Yeah. You know, I mean, everything's so expensive, and we could talk forever about that. Uh, we're included. Our prices are higher because we pay more for food, pay more for labor. But, but it got sort of this diluted sense of um, of entertainment and and clubbiness that that isn't important to me unless that's what I'm going for. But if I'm going for that, then I'll accept that and not expect really good food. Right. But right. when you're paying five hundred dollars a person, Oof. it better be great. Yeah, it better blow and you so, mind, right? Yeah. So I, you know, um, Itame and Val and those guys are awesome. Yeah. There's a couple good places like the sushi in the Miami market. In the design district. Upstairs there? That guy is doing it, and it's usually really good, pretty reasonable. Mr. Omakase is a good one for Downtown, me. yeah. Yeah, no okay. nonsense. Not going to get gouged. But sushi in general in Miami, I will never go to another pop-up omakase experience in this town yeah, ever. enough of those? Just, no. Let, let me ask you this. You mentioned COVID. and uh, Two things, COVID and then really the, the way that things have changed. So over the course of your restaurant being open 15 years which is like a life that is like 16 next month Methuselah for a restaurant in Miami uh, you did something interesting you totally revamped a restaurant like right. it, you totally it's 100% different inside you totally changed the menu yes um, why take that risk I mean I know that you've you've been involved with some other things you know the original Harry's closed you consolidated mm -hmm. you know it's those things you know risk and you've seen it restaurants not work out yeah what made you decide that you had to do that yeah I it was a it was a it was a nerve-wracking experience to change something that people I think are so connected with mm -hmm. and people are really uh, not willing to change much yeah. right. We have lots of copies of, you know, don't move my cheese books around, <laughs> you know, for our managers when we try to change something. But it, it needed it and it was time. And so we had support from a great landlord uh, and we made a commitment and it was based on a pretty good track record. Uh, but, you know, changing things was uh, was, a, I guess, a little bit of a risky move, um, but it needed it. it. The restaurant was sort of you know it's a small it was a small it still is small but it was it was really small the kitchen was small yeah it's maybe twice as big as it was high before. volume and it just got worked over and it was tired i think i i think it was physically tired it was creatively getting a little tired mm. and we needed a shot in the arm and i and we saw the design district evolve around us and felt like we needed to evolve too you mentioned a shot in the arm you, you got COVID over, yeah, yeah. over like m many of us did. I, I know that I did it uh, after a whole two year wait. And, but that to me was like a surgeon not being able to use his hands. Like oh, you, yeah. you lost your sense of taste. Yeah, I did. That, that whole thing was scary for me. And um, I got it bad. Like I was oh. three, I was, 
I thought I was going to die. Oh, I'm not even kidding. I was, wow. I was this close to going to the emergency room in conjunction with my doctors. You know, I had that pulse oximeter, yeah. checking my oxygen level thing. Yeah. And he's like, if it goes down one more degree, you have to go to the emergency room. And I was having trouble breathing. It was pretty serious. I was out for three weeks, lost my taste, of se- uh, sense of taste and smell for probably another month after that. But that must have been pretty. It was pretty weird. Intimidating. But I was, I didn't even care about my taste or smell. I just didn't want to die, right? So once yeah. I turned the corner, I was like, "This is fine. That'll go away. I'm good." But it was scary, and uh, and yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And I, and it was right when I was supposed to get vaccinated. It was right when the vaccine came out. Right. And I was slated to get vaccinated. Then I got COVID. Then I got vaccinated. I, I want to talk about, you know, you, your restaurant, you've had such success with a lot of things, but I know that that, that failure sometimes can be a, a good teacher. But I want to come back to that after we take a little break. We've been speaking with Michael Schwartz. He's a pioneering Miami chef who's nominated for a James Beard Award. We're going to take a little break and be back with you on Sundial. We're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias, and our guest is Michael Schwartz. Michael, I'm curious, you know, um, you've had a lot of success, and I know that we talked a little bit about how your, some of the challenges led to even Michael, uh, Michael's genuine starting. Um, I'm curious for you to take us a little bit further back. What, what made you decide that you wanted to be a chef for a living? That's a good one. Um, I didn't, so when I was 15, my dad's like, all right, you're going to get a job. What did your folks do? Tell me about them real quick. So my dad w- owned an auto supply store. Okay. Uh, first in South Philly, and then he got robbed like three times at gunpoint in one week. Oof. So he moved his store to uh, the northeast part of Philadelphia in a better neighborhood. But he wasn't super ambitious. And my mom was really a stay-at-home mom until she uh, later she got divorced, and then she got her real estate license and did some real estate transactions. But... I would say I didn't learn my work ethic or drive from my parents. But your dad was like, get a job. Yeah, he's like, get a job. So I remember him. He's like, all right, we're going to go to some restaurants, put on a black pants and a white button-down shirt, and you're going to go get a job. And so he took me to this place, and I walked in, and I came back out. I'm like, all right, I got the job. I start now. <laughs> and it was a restaurant. It was called Delulo's. Okay. And it was in northeast Philadelphia. And it was in the 70s, late 70s. Okay. And I can hear the guitar risk. Well, it was, it was this beautiful, very Milan-esque inspired, legitimate Italian restaurant. White tile, chrome, crushed green velvet furniture, very sophisticated. And they were doing things at that point, like, like making Parmesan gelato and tomato sorbet and using things like radicchio and things that just you didn't exist in the 70s so you kind of lucked into this really 100 percent. and i got a job as a busboy and i think pretty instantly became obsessed and infatuated by the restaurant business what was was it what was it about it was everything it was the sound it was the excitement it was the challenge i didn't know anything so I remember I had this this little mater d. His name was Toto, <laughs> right? Like like the Wizard of Oz, yeah. short for Antonio. 
And he was Italian, very broken English, but he became sort of my mentor. But he would be up my yeah. butt, uh, you know, for everything. Anything that I did, even when I moved into the kitchen. So about after about a year, I was like, all right, I want to move into the kitchen. I started doing prep and work my way up and and then just started cooking. And then I knew that that's what I wanted to do. It's interesting because I, I talked to the late Nino Pernetti and who had worked in the back of the house, who had worked both. And he said that he, did, he didn't want to smell like onions and garlic. He wanted to be a, a restaurateur and be in the front of the house. And you know? God bless him. And he was so good at it. Yeah, I, conversely, didn't want to talk to people or, <laughs> or be like, so I was like, I just want to cook. But I, I found it as a real passion and, uh, and never looked back. And in fact, you know, my parents wanted me to go to college. I hated school. I was on a work roster program where I would finish school at like noon. Oh. And then be able to go to work. Okay. And it was like heaven for me. So I barely finished high school. And they're like, well, you're going to go to college? I was like, man. So I applied for this chef's apprenticeship program at Bucks County Community College. And I remember I had to go in and do a, do a spice smell test. Huh. Okay. And I think I failed. And they were like, well, we put you on a waiting list. Wait, they the, the test to get in was whether you could tell what cumin think, was by smelling it? I think it? that there was like a application and then there was like a smell test that I think I failed. That's how I remember it. Do you think, was there a moment where you, and this must have happened throughout your career, where you're tasting and smelling new things that are just blowing parts of your brain that are like turning on parts of your brain? All the time. Yeah. And that's the, that I mean, for me, that's the excitement of, of what I do. But I didn't get into that program and it was fine. But I thought that I would take some business courses while I waited to get in, uh-huh. and that blew up. So I always joke around like my I went to part time community college for half a semester, and that was the extent of my uh, higher education. Well, you mentioned that that you're like you weren't a great businessman. Then can you talk about some of those things? Because people see the shining the shiny thing at the end, yeah. But they don't see some of the failures. Uh, along. Will you talk some about some of the things that you learned? Some of the things that happened that, that taught you a good lesson. I mean, so many things if I look back, but I think generally I just had my head down yeah. and I was working. And uh, I, I capitalized on, on, on opportunity as it presented itself mm-hmm. to me without really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. For instance, like leaving, splitting up with Miles uh, and not having a plan was a classic example. I'm just like, well, something will happen, yeah. you know? And uh, for the most part it did. Uh, until I figured out that if you do that, it's probably not going to lead to the best results. In other words, whenever you make a plan, right, and you think it through and you talk through it with a, a colleague or a mentor or a significant other and write it down, then it's much easier to execute on that plan than to just say that things will happen. Right. Uh, but it took me a long time, and I would say that it took me my best friend and business partner, Sunil, to really instill that in me. It's like, okay, if you want something, let's map it out and let's execute against it. And when and when that happened, I think um, it opened up a lot more, I think, uh, deliberate um, strategic moves and maybe some success. Although, you know, some of that stuff will blow up too. Right. One of, one of your other successes that we love is is Harry's Pizzeria, and that's named after one of your sons, or your son. And I'm curious about whether your career has inspired them to 
follow the food path or to do something totally different? Yeah, that's a great question. And I still ask myself that question, (laughs) although I probably have a little bit better clarity on that than I ever have. So I have three kids. My oldest daughter's 26, my middle daughter's 23, and my son's 19. And uh, my oldest was a, is a, is an art history, she graduated with art history major from Tulane. And she lives in New York and she works for an international uh, art gallery as a director. And nice. they have a, a, a gallery in Dubai, a gallery in New York. She, love, she loves it. It's been good for her. Um, and, and not sure that she's ever going to be in the restaurant business. Uh, and if she is, I think it would be in some marketing sort of higher level capacity. I don't think she has any desire to work in a restaurant. My middle uh, was on a scholarship for the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and she lives in Chicago. And she dropped out through COVID because she didn't want to be in art school virtually. And she found a passion in baking, and she works for a great bakery in Chicago. What's it called? It's called Floriel. Okay. And she's super creative uh, and is really getting into baking. And she's a great cook. They're all great cooks. Oh, that's good. Uh, And they all have a great palate. They have a great sense of what goes together, building combinations of flavors and stuff like that. But so there's hope for her. She will. But but (laughs) but I'll tell you. And Harry. I'll tell you about Harry. And then I want to go back and just talk about how young kids see the world right now, Mm -hmm. because it's super fascinating to me. Harry is an amazing drummer. He's been playing the drums since he was four. He's 19. He's a giant, 6'4", about 250. <laughs> um, and he's in a bunch of bands. He lives here in Miami, and then he works at Harry's. And he's a great cook. Uh, and he's sort of not sure if he's pursuing music or cooking. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. But I would say two out of three. But It'll never be in a business model like uh, like the businesses that I've built. Restaurants in and, general. Well, I could be a restaurant, but you know, like my my middle daughter, her name's Lua. She sees th- she sees things very differently, and um, equity and pay w- wages, and everyone should make the same, and 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 they're they're completely not motivated by money, hmm. and. And it's it's fascinating to me. I, I'm curious how being a chef. I mean, you talked about the intensity of the lifestyle. How did that affect your family life? Ah, uh, you know, not great. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that I missed out a big part of my kids growing up. You know, I was super focused on building a business. Yeah, head and, down, like you said. What's that? Head down, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, like, I mean, if you're f- super focused on one thing, then something else is going to suffer. So I, I think, you know, I never, I laugh, I never mastered the work-life balance thing. Um, and and I, I don't know, frankly, if it's possible in this business. Are your kids teaching you that, though? It sounds like they're teaching you some new things about oh, yeah. the way to see the world. No, my kids teach me things every day. And I try to, you know, stay connected with them. Uh, and, and, you know, and sometimes I'm better at it than other times, you know. But... You know, I like to go visit them. Fortunately, you know, one lives in Chicago, one lives in New York. Great cities. Two places I love to visit, great food cities. And so, yeah, we talk about it. We talk about their growing up and what they benefited from and what they, you know, what they sort of missed out on. But, uh, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. 
You mentioned the kind of the ethic that your middle daughter has. Lua? Lula? Lua. Lua. Um, what's different? How is that the way that she sees the cooking food creation world different than how you, you were when you were when you were coming up? She, uh, well, that's, I don't even know if I could answer that. Mm-hmm. She's a very unique uh, and, and creative and artistic approach uh, that I think, dictates all of the things that she thinks about in her decisions. But she also works for this bakery that is really good at sort of sharing the wealth. Hmm. I think everyone makes the same amount of money. They split tips. They all do each other's job. Um, and, and you know, my, my experience coming up in this business was that model d- didn't work. Hmm. But I will tell you, like pre-COVID, our business model in general in hospitality and restaurants was broken. Mm. And I think that COVID forced us to, to look at all of those things. We lost a ton of uh, workforce from hospitality through COVID. I think people just decided that they didn't want to do that. It was too hard, too much exposure to other people, whatever it was. So it made, I think, us, I know for me, for sure, and I probably speak for a lot of my colleagues, reevaluate what was important. And, you know, you hear people say now a lot about work-life balance because people are just not going to tolerate not having it and they'll just go work somewhere else. So we've been forced to figure out how to do things to make it a better life for people working in hospitality, whether it's more benefits, higher pay, paid time off, uh, other perks, things. And so it's been an initiative in our company for the last couple years. We named it Project Diamond, and our executive team will meet. You know, in the beginning, we met every week. We meet less frequently now because we've accomplished a lot of what we set out to do. But uh, that exercise, also driven by Sunil, was eye-opening because people want to feel connected. They want better communication. They want a better platform to speak about things that they're not happy about. So we do more surveys. We've offered pay time off. We've increased minimum wage throughout our company to $15, well in advance of the state of Florida doing it, and, and, and on and on and on about how to become a better employer, an employer of choice. Be- before we, we go in, in the last minute or so, can you talk about what you would like to see happen next? Obviously, you've had, you've had such an influence on this kind of next generation of young chefs opening their own restaurants and them influencing others and even... Uh, influencing uh, Pushkar Marathi, who was mm-hmm. on the show. What would you like to see, or what are you loving that you would like to see more of? Well, I, th- I think for sure more of that, more of the people that I spend time mentoring, them becoming mentors, for sure is good. I, I, it's an interesting time, Carlos, because I think post-COVID, I just needed like a breather. Last year was the first year in a long time as a restaurant company that we hadn't opened a new restaurant. Oh wow! And it was important to me to just take some time uh, to reflect and to look at what we were doing in our existing restaurants that could be better, like Project Diamond and other things that we've done. So I think that reflection time is sort of tailing off for me now, and I'm starting to think about what would be next. But right now, no new projects slated right now. It's really just being better, being more profitable, pushing top line revenue, being a better employer, uh, you know, and really dialing in the details of our business, which are infinite. 
you know, and the minute you take your eye off of something, then it falls apart, literally. So, uh, but I, I think as an industry, I think those things, seeing more mentorship, seeing more empathy, seeing more uh, balance, somehow figuring that out, uh, and, uh, you know, more of that. Last question. One restaurant where I'm where where you eat? That's one of your one of your go tos. Oh, Give it I, to all me. right. I'm going to tell you my Valentine's Day uh, um, um, tradition. Give it to me. Twenty seconds. Let's go. First, we go. We get dressed up. We go to the Surf Club, the Four Seasons, and my favorite bar, that lobby bar. Beautiful. We hit that bar. We have champ expensive champagne. We have caviar. Then we walk over to Flanagan's, and we have beer and chicken wings. I love it. I love it. Best I could do. Folks, follow Michael Schwartz's advice. Michael Schwartz is a pioneering <laughs> Miami chef. He's up for his second James Beard Award, and uh, we'll look out to see if he lands it. I hope he does. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. Thank you, Carlos. And that's Sundial for Wednesday, February 8th. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bateman. Our engagement editor is Katie Leprey-Cohen, and our digital editor is Mateo Sanchez. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. Coming up tomorrow on the program, uh, we will have uh, Neven Patel, uh, who's made his mark on the South Florida food scene. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.